Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Says Podcast. My guest today is John Scher. John, what's the status of the independent concert promotion business today? Close to pitiful. Live Nation overwhelmingly dominates the entire concert business. Um, I believe they're a monopoly. Um, So far, the Justice Department has not said that. Um, AEG is, uh, a much, much smaller competitor. Uh, and then there are, you know, literally a handful of, of independent promoters, really only a handful of, of ones that were once major promoters as we were. I mean, we were for many, many years, top 10 promoters, one or two years, we were the biggest promoters in the country. Um, but what, what's happened is, uh, you know, Live Nation, look, their model works for them. There's, there's, there's no question. I did, I didn't, I wasn't a believer. They tried to buy me a couple of times and I was not a believer. Um, I see now how they've been successful. And, uh, you know, you got to take your hat off to Michael Rapino, who, uh, you know, is running a public company, uh, that despite the fact that many people, including myself, think it's a monopoly, uh, is, is, is doing pretty well. Um, so, you know, it's very hard. I don't think, uh, somebody young in the business could repeat what I've done or what any number of other, uh, major promoters, Jerry Michelson, Greg Perloff and Sherry Wasserman, uh, the few of us that are left, um, could do it. Okay. What is the status of your promotion business at this point um you know it's pretty good um we've become a a a small hall theater uh company for the most part we've got only an occasional arena show we've got two uh two sold out tool shows at madison square garden next month um but 
arena shows where I used to do 50, 60 a year are down to a handful. Uh, so you can't make the profit and nor therefore uh, be able to support the infrastructure uh, that you need. Uh, so, you know, over the last uh, 10 years or so, we've, we've gotten smaller. Um, we're still doing about 100 shows a year, but almost exclusively anywhere from 500 seaters to 6,000 seaters. Okay. So you say you have Tool in Madison Square Garden. How did you get that as opposed to Live Nation or AEG? Pure loyalty by the band and their agent. You know, something that, something that existed uh, for most of my career. If you play the act when they're small um, and you keep doing a good job, uh, they stay with you. Uh, especially over the, since the Ticketmaster uh, merger with Live Nation, that just isn't the case. I mean, I, I'll give you a, a good example. Um, I played Iron Maiden from the very, very beginning up through and including selling them at Madison Square Garden uh, and in the Meadowlands and at Nassau Coliseum. Three tours ago, uh, um, I got my Madison Square Garden date, but I came to discover that I was one of only two promoters in the country that got an arena. Live Nation got all the rest of the dates. Um, so we did We did the show. It sold out. A couple years later, my phone rings, and it's Rod Smallwood, who's the manager of Iron Maiden, longtime manager. All right. And he calls me. Uh, note, the agent didn't call me. The manager called me and said, I'm really sorry, but I can't give you a date this, on this tour. And I said, did we do anything wrong? I said, no, you've always been great. But Live Nation made a point of saying that if they don't get New York, they're going to change the offer they made and it will cost me millions of dollars. So I'm sorry, John, you're a good guy, but we can't play for you anymore. So right there on a given Iron Maiden tour, which would happen, say, every two or three years, I'd usually get four or five shows, New York, New Jersey, Long Island. Buffalo, Rochester, Albany, those kinds of places. Now I've got none. Okay, let's do the math here. You're saying Rod Smallwood said if he didn't go with Live Nation, he would lose millions of dollars. Now, if you look at all the markets you were in, why couldn't he make those millions and add them in to Live Nation? Where would Rod have lost the millions? Live Nation would have changed. I don't know what ultimately they paid him per show or per tour. All right. But he indicated to me that the offer that he had, if, if, if they, if, if they gave us New York and there's a promoter since passed away in Florida, he got Florida, John Stoll, um, that they would change the deal to, to lesser terms. Wow. So. Rod called you. Have you had this conversation with other uh, managers or agents? Well, in this case, the agent didn't ever even call me. Um, maybe Rod told him he called, and 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 that's why. Um, I've had similar conversations uh, with uh, with uh, managers and agents. You know, a a absolutely. 
Um, you know, if it's an act that we've had a long history with, for example, um, I played Peter Gabriel a lot of times early in his career and actually promoted the first Genesis tour ever in America. Um, you know, I, when, when I saw he was putting a record out, I called his agent, uh, John Marks in, in, at uh, WME, um, and I said, I see Peter's putting an album out. You know, he usually tours behind albums. I said, uh, can we talk about some dates? And he said, nope. I said, uh, why not? He said, we're going with Live Nation. I said, what if I could put together a consortium? Nope. We did the last tour with Live Nation. We're going we're gonna to do it again with them. Just to stay on your point, how difficult for, would it be for you to put together a consortium? Um, modestly difficult. You know, uh, there's four or five um, independents still that, uh, you know, I know uh, would join together another planet, Jam, Nederlander, um, Danny Zalesko. Uh, so, yes, we could put it together. We couldn't snap our fingers. Uh, like Live Nation and AEG can, you know, they can just snap their fingers, you know, and in an hour put together uh, a tour. But, you know, given a little bit of time, we absolutely could do it. So let's say you put together the consortium, you put together 25 dates. Do you believe your offer can be as good as Live Nation's in raw dollars? No. And why is that? Because First of all, they they they, uh, they try very hard to lobby acts to only tour in America between like late April or early May to maybe October, early October, because they 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 own or control ninety maybe ninety five percent of all the amphitheaters. So when you get an act to play their amphitheaters, besides the ticket sales which famously some acts have gotten 100% of, of, of the ticket sales at amphitheaters, uh, they have all the ancillaries. They have sponsorship, they have food and beverage, they have merchandising, and they have Ticketmaster uh, uh, fees. Uh, and so at the end of the day, they can break even at the door, even maybe lose some money, all right, um, and still make a lot of money. I'm told from my deep throat in uh, Live Nation uh, that they average about $35 a head in ancillaries. So, you know, let's say the average amphitheater show does 10,000 people due to multiplication. They don't need to make any money at the, at, at, at the door. What if the act wants to play inside? Um, they buy tours that, that all the time that do inside. Now they don't have as, as, as many ancillaries, um, but they certainly have Ticketmaster. Uh, and when they put a tour together indoors, they do everything they possibly can to only play buildings that use Ticketmaster. Um, and probably, I don't know this, but probably, uh, they have deals with certain arenas, uh, that they go to with a lot of shows. Uh, so they, you know, they probably have a rebate situation. Okay. If you could snap your fingers, what would you like 
the live music business to look like? Well, um, I think there's a couple of things wrong. I mean, the, 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 the monopoly, the Live Nation monopoly is the first thing that's wrong. Uh, you'd like to believe that the promoter in a given market that can do the best job and or has a relationship with the act and has played them uh, would have an opportunity uh, to, to promote them and at least match it. Um, but the other issue that's very important is that ticket prices have completely gone, you know, wonkers. Uh, you know, the average uh, arena or stadium P1 ticket prices, top ticket prices, are pretty normally close to $1,000. Um, so what's happened to our concert industry is two things. Obviously, there's a lot of rich people in North America. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a trophy. They can tell their neighbor, the neighbors that, you know, they're sitting in the fifth row. Um, and then, of course, the average fan, all right, who probably can't buy the P1 tickets, but, you know, when the, when the P2, P3 tickets are down at, you know, a couple of hundred dollars, um, they can buy them, but they probably can't go to a couple of other shows that they would during the year. So I think that <clears throat> this monopoly is endangering artist development terribly. Uh, I think there are a lot of good young promoters who promote in clubs and small halls, but they have little chance of being able to expand their businesses beyond that. They basically have two choices. Uh, stay modest, can make a, you know, a decent living in clubs and small halls, or try to get Live Nation or AEG to buy. What do you say to Live Nation's claim that their market share is somewhere in the neighborhood of 60? I'd have to look. I think they say 50-something. What would you say to that? Well, um, the, 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 the question that, that's most relevant is what percentage of arena and stadium and amphitheater headliners do they control? All right. I've got to then believe that uh, that number is 70% uh, and that AEG's got another 20 or 25%. It is very rare these days that arena size headliners, amphitheater size headliners, stadium headliners uh, don't play for one of the two of them. Tool. Is a, is is a, is is a great example. They've stayed loyal to me, and they've stayed loyal to, um, you know, a lot a lot of independents. Diana Ross has stayed very loyal. Um, and last time around in New York, um, they made a real run at Diana Ross, who I've been promoting for forty years. Um, and it forced me to have to, you know, pay a larger guarantee. But it sold out, so you know it, it, it was fine. It all came out in the wash. Uh, so, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, when when the when when the live, when Justice Department first investigated Live Nation, they claimed that yes, they and then they owned a lot of the amphitheaters. Now they own almost all of them, uh, and they they claimed that the acts could always choose to play indoors. But as I've explained a minute ago, 
it's not there because if I do a show at the Prudential Center in Newark, Madison Square Garden, uh, you know, Buffalo Memorial Auditorium, any 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 of the venues that we we go in, I don't get any of the ancillaries. The buildings keep the ancillaries. Do they give you, you know, the, the buildings try to give you a little taste? Usually they do, um, but not a big taste. Versus Live Nation can say, wait until May, all right, before you go out or maybe end of April and start down south. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we'll give you 100% of the box office. We'll give you 90% of the box office. Whatever it is, that's nothing that you can do indoors. Okay, let's just nail indoors because certainly there are a lot of tours that go out during the winter or even play arenas during the uh, summer. So you compare the economics of an arena date that you promote as opposed to Live Nation promoting. Well, um, an arena date that an independent like us uh, does, there you know, are basic expenses, the guarantee to the act. First and foremost, uh, the expenses of doing of doing the show, rent, advertising, staffing, etc. All right, so you've got to pay the guarantee. You put tickets on sale. You got to pay the guarantee first, and you got to pay all the other expenses. And after at that point, you start to potentially make a profit. And often the artist makes percentage money. At the amphitheaters, they don't have to do any of that. They don't pay rent to themselves. No, 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 no. I got that. I got there. But Live Nation also plays dates in arenas, yes. just like you. Yes. So tell me where the economics differ there. They own Ticketmaster. Okay. Let's, let's stop for a second. If you could snap your fingers, you claim uh, that Live Nation is a monopoly. If you were to. Break up a monopoly. What would it look like? Well, um, you know, only, the only one who can really break up a monopoly is the government. Um, what would it look like? Uh, you know, they would perhaps be forced to sell off a certain number of amphitheaters that people like me could could pick up. Actually, there's two amphitheaters that we built that they that they have now. Um, one outside of Buffalo, one in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, so that that you know that's that's number one. Uh, num, 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 number two, uh, the the whole uh, guarantee idea of what percentage of the gross uh, they can they can uh, uh, they can give the act. All right, you can't as as I just explained, you can't do it indoors. All right. Um, so, uh, if they got broken up, selling off, say, half of the amphitheaters to other people, number one. Number two, I don't want them to, uh, you know, they don't have to uh, divest from Ticketmaster. They simply have to uh, let in, in uh, you know, the, the, with buildings that they have exclusively, Ticketmaster, which are a huge majority. Of, of the arenas in this country, um, they they are exclusive. So if I go to Madison Square Garden with two sold out tool shows, 
The Ticketmaster fees are enormous. They scalp their own tickets. They have this thing called TM Plus, but they've also been caught scalping their tickets. Um, so, uh, you know, if if I had the freedom, I would go into Madison Square Garden or the Prudential Center or or any other venue, um, and I would use a different ticketing company. There are a lot of them out there, all right, but none of them have the anything close to the volume that that uh, Ticketmaster has. So those are the two main things. If we can be entrepreneurial with the, with with the ticket providers, um, and if uh, we can break the the sort of uh, gatekeeping of the amphitheaters. Uh, th- you know that would make a a business such as mine much much healthier. Okay, let's say you do a date at a building that has an exclusive Ticketmaster contract. Don't you share in the fees? No, very rare. If you do share in the fees. Why would that happen? Um, well, it hasn't happened in, in in a long time. I mean, you know, there, there you know, there was a, a lot of years that we would do in in the main amp in the na- main arenas that that we worked at. You know, fifteen twenty shows a year. We essentially were a franchise, uh, and and so if you guaranteed a lot of shows, like I did at the old Meadowlands Arena, for example, all right. Uh, you had a leverage so that you could say, "Hey, I need a piece of you know. I either need to bring my own ticketing in, or I need a piece of what you're getting kicked back." All right. Um, so you know, but I can't do that volume anymore. And so the 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 arenas that I you know used to do that with, I you know, if I'm doing two, three, four shows a year versus twenty or twenty five, I've got no leverage whatsoever. And then. Uh, you know, there's the con- their contract with almost all the buildings includes uh, uh, the use of TM Plus. All right. Um, every single show that we do, we tell the buildings we don't want TM Plus. But what I found out a number of years ago was even if we, t- and, and he acts as long as the, the agent or the manager will, will confirm in writing that they don't want TM Plus, all right, they take it down. Except for when a show becomes ninety five percent sold out, or s- some number like that, and then without your permission, they put it on 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 uh, on, on on Ticketmaster on TM Plus, and suddenly, where sometimes you'd look at a show that you know was uh, almost sold out, and there was only in say in a given arena with a capacity of let's call it fifteen thousand, and you only saw. Um, as I would tool right now that there's a few hundred tickets left in, in, in each category. Once they turn on TM plus all of a sudden miracle of miracles, there's 2000 tickets available. Now they'll tell you that's independent scalpers. Um, and it may be, but it's also them. It's also them. And they, you know, they've got caught scalping tickets. I mean, they, you know, they got caught with Metallica. Um, which, you know, you could, you could have knocked me over with a feather when I found out that, that Metallica was complacent with Ticketmaster scalping tickets, you know, two best managers in the business, as far as I'm concerned. 
you know, I don't think they had a lot of control over their clients in this regard. Um, so, you know, you, you simply can't compete um, with the money they make at Ticketmaster. And look, when I first got into the business, actually, when I first got into business, there was no computerized ticketing at all. But early on, there was Ticketron. And, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I think, you know, the Ticketron uh, fee was probably a buck. You know, maybe it was two bucks. All right. Now it can be $35, of which the promoter gets none of. But if you're Ticketmaster, sometimes they'll make more money on one of my shows than I will on the show at no risk. Okay. Let, let's stay with your tool shows. A, do you have any idea what the, off the top of your head, what the fees are on the tool tickets? I do, but not off the top of my head. Okay. Uh, let's put it this way. Of the shows that you do in arenas, of the overall price, what would you say your fees, percentage-wise? The ticketing fees. Yes. Um, I'd say somewhere between 10 and $20. And for bigger shows, the higher the ticket price is, the higher the... the uh, the service charges, which makes no sense from a business perspective, except for them. But for a fan, Ticketmaster does nothing more to sell a fan a ticket if the ticket's $25 or whether it's $1,000. Same process, same computer use, um, but uh, the industry uh, has let, let them get away with it. Um, and uh, there's no looking back right now. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, 
You can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Michael Rappaport, and my wife, Kibi Rappaport, starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Ticketmaster might say that the majority of the fees go to the building. Is that something you agree with? I don't think it's reasonably close to the majority. I think the buildings get rebates, no question. The the buildings get uh, um, huge advances. Um, And especially when they're, you know, municipally owned buildings or state-owned buildings, they often need the money. Um, so they basically get bribed into making a Ticketmaster deal, and that advance is against a certain percentage of 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 the service charge. But I would not think it was a majority, or even close. Uh, Live Nation would say otherwise, but we don't have the facts in front of us. So let's move on from that. How do you feel about these exclusive deals with buildings with Ticketmaster to begin with? I think it's terrible. I think it's 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 uh, you know helping towards the ruination of 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 the uh, of of the marketing of the concert business. You know, um, if we could, if 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 a promoter could come into a building and use somebody other than Ticketmaster, all right. Number one, the service charges would be less, much less, all right. And number two, I think the TM plus and the scalping. Would be reduced tremendously. Okay, you mentioned these municipal buildings that need the money. So, if we get rid of the advances, what are these buildings going to say? If we got rid of exclusives, we're taking money directly out of the bottom line of these buildings. Yes, but you see, they still can. They, they, in other words, um. First, if 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 they were open, if the if the the ticketing was open to to the promoters, all right. Certainly, Live Nation would use Ticketmaster. Certainly, AEG would use their system, all right. But the independent promoters, all right, would probably go to other independent companies, all right. And the buildings could say, okay, look, we get X amount of dollars from from Ticketmaster, not not from an advance point of view, but from a per ticket point of view, and to let you uh, use your own ticketing company, you've got to match that. Now, I'm not sure that would be legal, but at least it would be something. Okay, let's go back a step. Yes, like with Taylor Swift, they said they turned off TM Plus. 
you know from personal experience that when you and the act have told them to turn off TM plus, they have turned it on. At the end, yes. I don't know whether they did it Taylor Swift because I didn't promote any Taylor Swift. No, I'm not, no as I, I know, the only reason I'm about Taylor Swift is I know that she said to turn it off. I can't tell you what happened there, but I'm using an example. You have done shows where the promoter and the act, usually the act's in control anyway, saying no TM plus, and there has been TM plus. Yes. Not from the beginning, always towards the end. Always towards the end. Now, this is something theoretically you could document. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh absolutely. Look, I'll go back. I'll go back to uh, Diana Ross about five or six years ago. We're playing Radio City. We say no TM plus. Diana's agent puts in a writing, no TM plus. Show sells very, very quickly. And we're holding the next day for a second show. Um, We're now 95% sold out. They turn on ticket, ticket, TM plus. I, you know, I jump up and down, scream and yell. All right. They do it anyway. So I see that suddenly there are a lot more tickets available. All right. Um, Where did they come from? I can't tell you. I can't document. But suddenly there's more available. All right. So now I have to go to Diana Ross and her agent uh, and her lawyer and say, look, here's a problem. We add the second show. All right. All the potential buyers, fans that were going to buy off of TM Plus for inflated prices are going to first try to run to buy the best tickets for the second day. And we were only like three weeks before the shows. So I said, it's very possible that the first show will have a couple of hundred empty seats right up front. And that's not a good look. And I don't, you know, I can't recommend to 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 Ms. Ross that that uh, uh, that we do that. She and her her advisors agreed. We didn't add the second day. Um, the Madison Madison Square Garden executives, who are pretty good people um, to work with, you know, tried everything they could to get us to add the second day, but. It didn't make sense. Diana Ross is a legend. She's a superstar. And she shouldn't play a show that there's, you know, 250 or 300 empty seats in the first 10 rows. So, yes, I gave up a second show that I could have made, you know, a good profit in. But, you know, as I've always tried, uh, you know, try to protect the act. The act gives you the, the, the ability to promote them. You do everything you can to help that. I mean, Bob, I've been doing this for nearly 50 years. I've never scalped a ticket for one of my own shows ever. And if you think about my representation of the Grateful Dead, how many millions of dollars I could have made scalping those tickets. All right. All you can say is I'm a schmuck. Okay. With all the shows you've put on, have you ever found 
that you're the managers or the act themselves have scalped some of the tickets that they've been allotted? Um, very rarely. There are two instances in the 80s when the uh, um, Meadowlands Arena uh, first was built. You know, I, I was in business probably for about 10 years uh, before that arena opened. And, you know, we owned the Capitol Theater in uh, Passaic and, you know, did hundreds and hundreds of shows there. But there was no arena in New Jersey. I used to do some summer shows uh, at an old AAA baseball park in Jersey City, some very famous shows. But, um, you know, I'm waiting for an arena. So the arena gets built. It was an industry that was still, uh, you know, very personally involved that loyalty was pretty much there all the time um so as acts that i've played before and even acts that i that that i didn't i was the logical promoter our company was the logical company uh to get to get those shows um now there's there's a there's a whole long story about uh my my relationship with ron delsner over that but it's neither here nor there uh, whoa, 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 whoa. just give us a little taste of that um when when i i had a good relationship with ron all right i stayed in jersey he stayed in new york you know i did hundreds and hundreds of shows in Passaic and asbury park and jersey city and stuff like that when the meadowlands arena was starting to be built ron asked me out to lunch and uh like i said we were pretty friendly in those days and i said sure so we went to lunch and at lunch he says to me um john said they're building this new arena right and i said oh yeah i'm you know i'm real involved i've been been involved in the you know in, in the preliminary all the preliminary stuff with the sports authority you know i can't wait he said well you know what john i'm gonna lose some shows i said uh you know because the most acts we're playing two shows at the garden. There was no New Jersey show. All right. So I said, you're not going to lose them all. You know? So he says to me, uh, well, you and I, we should be partners on those shows. All right. So I looked at him and I said, Ron, I'll tell you what, let's go back to 1971 when I opened up the Capitol at age 20. Uh, and let's go back to whatever that date was in, 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 in uh, the 80s. I'll show you my books. You show me your books. All the money that you made at Madison Square Garden, you write me a check for half of it. All right. And we can be partners on everything. So <clears throat> he lost his temper a little bit. Uh, and uh, he said, uh, listen, if you don't do this, I'm going to put you out of business. All right. And I said, I, I'm, I don't think so. I'm pretty confident. So the meeting ended. One of the guys who worked for him at the time, a guy named Jonathan Scherer, um, really good guys, passed away, um, hung back and said to me, John, the acts and the agents love Ryan. He's going to put you out of business. He's not kidding. And I looked at him and I said, Jonathan, no offense, I'm not worried. So when the arena opens for the first number of years, we basically do every single show, all right, except for two. 
one, Rod Stewart, the other, Madonna. Rod Stewart's uh, manager and Madonna's manager at the time was Freddie DeMann, in each case, asked for something like 500 tickets to be held for them. It was obvious what they were going to do. They didn't say we're going to scalp them. They just said, um, and I turned them down. Uh, and then I didn't, I didn't get those shows. Uh, Delsner got those. That was, that was the first shows that Delsner ever got there. Um, so, um, you know, I, 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 you know, and I can look you in the eye and I can say, I've been really pretty, pretty straight across the board. Uh, and, and I'm more, I'm a schmuck. I've told you that before. All right. I said, I never scalped any tickets. Um, I never did any funny business with the books. Um, and it's, it's what I thought, you know, a one can just say it's the way my folks brought me up, but it's also early in my career, the most significant or one of the most significant relationships, um, I developed early on was with Frank Barcelona. All right. Uh, and premier talent. And, uh, you know, there's never been anything like pre- premier talent, even is as huge as CAA and, and WME and some of the other ones. Premier probably represented more than 50% of the headliners in the business for a long time. Uh, and I was sort of the youngest guy to get in on, the, you know, in, on, on the Barcelona gang. All right. Uh, you know, people like Don Wall and Larry Maggot. You know, we're at least 10 years older than me. Graham was 20 years older than me. Um, and it changed my life, obviously. Um, and, you know, Frank didn't want to hear about people scalping t- tickets. You know? um, so, you know, between my upbringing and, and Frank's guidance and Barbara's guidance, um, I never scalped tickets. And I, and I, you know, I stayed away from the managers who, who did. Okay. Let's just go back to, uh, Delsner. How come you got all the dates? I got all the dates because for 10 or 12 years before that, I would be doing probably 50 or 60 shows a year at the Capitol and convention hall in Asbury Park. All right. Delsner never tried to do shows in New Jersey. All right. And I worked really hard from the day I started to establish Jersey as a separate market from New York. All right. Now it's even more separate because of financial reasons. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, I've said this a thousand times. Uh, there's six million people that live in the, what was the old 201 area code. So the northern part of, of, of New Jersey. It's the second most densely populated state in the country. And I think it's the second highest per capita income. It was a market just in need of a city. All right. And when I was little, Newark was a big city. All right. And lots of acts played Newark. There was no arena, but, you know, every played from everybody from Lawrence Welk to the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan played Symphony Hall in, in, in Newark. Then there were these 1967 riots, um, and it wiped Newark off the face of the earth, and and still to this day hasn't completely recovered. It's come a long ways, you know. There's two great facilities there, and the Prudential Center and the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, 
and still symphony halls there. Um, but for a long, long time, uh, Newark was wiped off the fa face of the earth. But the metropolitan Newark uh, was a huge, wealthy market. And I grew up there. Uh, and uh, I understood it. Uh, and that's why, I, you know, no one was trying to book the Capitol Theater. You know, nobody was trying to book Asbury Park Convention. Well, I shouldn't say that. There was a guy named Mo Septi, very nice man who in the 50s into the, well, I don't know about the 50s, but the 60s into the early 70s, book shows at Convention Hall. He knew nothing about rock and roll. He was a classical music promoter. Uh, and he just believed whatever the agents told him. Um, but then when we came on board and started to look to do shows, at the time, we knew what we were doing, you know? We knew that the band, who he never heard of, could sell 3,000 tickets, you know? Um, you know, so uh, we competed uh, for about a year, year and a half, and then finally, he was a very nice man. He called me up, said, let's, ha let's have lunch, and he said, I'm going to give you my contract, all right? I, I can't compete with you, all right? Um, and he admitted, you know, he, he knew classical music inside out, but you know, what was happening is we were, we were booking the shows down the other end of the boardwalk at a place called the casino arena. All right. And we were, you know, we, we, we knew what we were doing, you know, it was of our age. I mean, we were kids. We, we, you know, one of the things, you know, that was so much fun for me was, you know, while my friends were in graduate school. You know, I was out there promoting concerts with acts that we all loved. Um, so he he saw the handwriting on the wall. Like I said, he was a very nice man. Um, and he said, uh, stop down the other end of the boardwalk. I'm going to give you my contract, set you up with the town uh, in the city. Uh, and uh, so for probably close to 20 years, we did all the shows in the summer in, in Asbury Park. Let's go back to Frank Barcelona. You and me know a lot about it. A lot of people don't. So tell me how you got included in Frank and how he kept everybody in their own area. Well, let's start with the second part. Uh, um, Frank envisioned the concert business almost like pro sports, almost like the major leagues. All right. Everybody had a franchise. If they did their job well, they were professional, innovative, all right? They got all his acts, all his acts, all right? Um, and uh, I, you know, I, like I said, I was a generation or a half a generation behind when that first got set up. But when I started, um, and I started doing shows in Jersey while I, while I was in college, um, and then, uh, uh, you know, so... It was hard in those days when the Fillmore East was still open. Uh, Graham had an exclusivity that was like 100 miles or 75 miles around New York. So you couldn't get very many acts to play Jersey, except for mostly the American acts. All right. I used to play Mountain a lot because, you know, <laughs> it, you know, uh, and, and, and so uh, in the case of Mountain, Frank was their agent. All right. So when I found the capital, and I had a partner in those days, um, when, I, when, when we found the capital, 
um i you know i i went to premiere i went to you know my agent there and got in to see frank and barbara uh and uh told them what i wanted to do um they gave me a blessing we opened the capitol with uh humble pie and the jay giles band instant sellout um you know frank was there uh and uh you know from that point on the capitol was a massive success for its size from the day it opened uh and so you know what that proved more than anything else was you know it proved me right about the market all right Passaic, new jersey was a little rundown industrial town all right no place people were going to hang out but you know we did a lot of sellout shows we did a lot of enormous uh shows i mean the rolling stones played there the who played there springsteen played there billy joel played there and in many of those cases way after they became arena uh so uh you know and and frank frank was really he, once he got past meeting him he's an incredibly nice friendly guy as his wife june <clears throat> is uh and so i got close with him uh and then i started to to uh to manage some acts uh and the first considerable act that i that that that, that i managed was uh, renaissance all right and uh i signed them to premiere and uh, they were you know they had about a 10-year run where they were really successful they were selling out 3000 seaters a couple of gold and platinum records um and the relationship just grew and grew and grew from there the big take from bloomberg news brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world western nations like the u.s and europe mexico will likely have its first female president and then you have china and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Michael Rappaport, and my wife, Kibi Rappaport, starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so let's say you wanted to do something in Pennsylvania, 50 miles from Philadelphia. What would Frank say? That's maggots territory. And uh, if, if it was 50 miles, which is why eventually I built an amphitheater in Scranton. All right. Um, nobody was doing it. All right. If, if you could find a market that nobody else was putting shows into, and there was another market to be added to a tour, Instead of 30 dates, there could be 31 dates. Um, Frank and the other agents, you know, were, were fine. If I wanted to go to Cherry Hill or, or Camden or something like that, not a shot. You know, Larry Maggot and Alan Spivak all the way. Okay, what about Jerry Weintraub when he wants to be the national promoter and also Bill Graham when he starts promoting the 74 Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young tour? What do you feel about that? Well, um, early on, before my relationship with the Grateful Dead uh, gelled, um, Graham was my hero. All right, and uh, you know I could follow him, follow him along like a puppy dog. Um, and uh, so, Crosby, Sills, Nash and Young, '74, we got the show at Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City. And actually, it's a very famous show in that it happened the night <clears throat> that Richard Nixon resigned. All right. And it was, you know, it was euphoria. Jerry Weintraub, I guess before I was in, in the business, I think he, you know, he did most of the Elvis dates, if not all of them. He did Led Zeppelin dates. And, oh, and Sinatra dates. All right. Um, so here's an interesting story. When Giant Stadium was first built and it opened a year before the arena opened, I was working with the Sports Authority and the Jersey Sports and Exhibition Authority. And uh, you know, I was going to promote the, the opening show at Giant Stadium, which was actually in year two. They didn't want that they barely finished the stadium for the Giants uh, to open in September. Um, but in year two, they were ready to do concerts. And there weren't a lot of stadium concerts in those days. So, uh, you know, I went out and tried to put a show together and did. Um, uh, Beach Boys, Steve Miller Band, Pablo Cruz. All right. So um, we're holding the date, talking to the agent. Wontrop is the manager of the Beach Boys in those days. All right. Uh, and although they were big, he wasn't promoting all of the dates. 
so, um, you know, I'm patiently waiting, waiting, waiting for the dates to get confirmed. And I get a phone call from one of the guys who runs the sports authority, a guy named Laura Smith, who's passed, but very important guy in my life. Uh, uh, and he, you know, he ran uh, the, the stadium in the arena for a long time. So I get a call from Loris and, and, and uh, he says to me, tomorrow morning, I want you to be in my office at nine o'clock. I said, what's up? He said, you'll see when you get here. So, and he was a bit of a wise guy. Great guy, but a wise guy. All right. So, you know, I picked my ass up. I went, got to his office. Um, and he was uh, sitting in his office with the chairman of, of the sports authority. So his boss, operationally not, but his boss. And um, they said, uh, John, <clears throat> uh, I'm going to walk you into another office. All right. And I want you to, there's somebody in there and I want you to talk to him. So we got up, we walked into the other office and there was Dave Ferrano. Worked for Wine Shop in Contra West at the time. And Loris walked me in and then left. And just left the two of us. <laughs> All right. So um, I said, Dave, what are you doing here? And he like, you know, stammered. Said, well, you know, we, you know, Jerry's decided we're going to, Jerry, Jerry and Tom Hewlett decided that, you know, we're going to promote the show. And I said, you see what just happened in the last five minutes? I said, I don't think so. All right. And, you know, the light bulb went up in his head. You know, he saw the way they played it. I got the show, sold it out. Um, and I got a phone call from Weintraub. Um, I can't remember if it was before the show or right after the show, but he was laughing. He got a huge kick that I stared him down. <laughs> Huge kick out of it. And from that point on, and the same thing with, with uh, 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 Tom Hewlett and, and Terry Bassett, all right, they almost always found, uh, you know, a show or a half a show for me with all the stuff that they, that they, they were doing. So, uh, um, you know, uh, it was, you know, listen, I was, I was a kid. I was, maybe I was 30. Uh, so, you know, that was great. Now, that led to another great story, um, which was um, Hewlett managed the Moody Blues. Not his whole, their whole career, but, you know, in the latter part of their career for a long time. And he played for me in New York. This is after I went into New York. Um, and uh, he, he, uh, I, I get the date from the agent and the phone rings. And it's Tom Hewlett. And he's hysterically laughing. So much that I couldn't understand what the hell he was saying. He was just belly laughing out loud. So I finally said, Tom, get a hold of yourself. You called me. Right? <laughs> so, so he did. And he said, you know what I've been doing for the last 20 minutes? I said, I have no idea. He said, getting screamed at at Bill Graham for giving you the Moody Blues. All right. I said, did he want it? No, he didn't want it. He wanted me to give it to Delsner. Now, now, this is a whole 
other huge part, you know, of my story. But Graham and I eventually became, you know, bitter enemies, uh, more on his end than mine. Um, but he hated me so much at that point because of the relationship I had with the Grateful Dead um, that he actually tried to, to hurt me. Uh, and and uh, uh, Tom thought it was so, he thought it was the funniest thing he ever heard in his life. All right. Uh, so, of course, I got the date. And, you know, later that day or that night is when Graham died in a helicopter crash. So the last thing that Bill Graham did that I know of was try to fuck me. So, and you know what? I can say truthfully, in many ways, he was my hero. Um, when he started, you know, this, this sort of war with me, you know, I learned a lot about him. I learned a lot from him. He was a great showman. No question. But he wasn't quite as squeaky clean as, as he would have had you believe that, that, that he was. I didn't want to fight with him. You know, I, there, there was no reason to fight with him. He's more successful than I was. He's a lot older than me. But uh, he, you know, there, you know, there's hours of stories I can tell you about our interactions over the years. Um, but that, that was one of them. Okay. Let's go back to something you said earlier, that the tickets are so expensive that it's hurting artist development. Now, I would say the tickets are so expensive because of demand. That's what people want to pay for them. Well, look, we will see in a couple of years. All right. There's no question that post-COVID, the, 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 you know, the, the, there was an enormous amount of pent up excitement about going to live shows again. All right. And I don't think we've seen the end of that. I think that there's no question that, that ticket prices for many, many, many years were undersold. All right. Underpriced. Uh, yeah. Underpriced. Yeah. Um, but should they have dreamt to, Six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred, a thousand dollars, twelve hundred dollars. No, no. A friend of mine the other day told me he found an old ticket stub of an Eagles show that I did in Rochester, New York, and the ticket was seventy-five dollars. And he remembers me going, and I, I did. I was at the time very friendly with Irving, um, and I said, "Are you nuts?" You know, because the average uh, P1 ticket price then was probably 40 maybe $50. And he said, there's a demand. And he's right. There was the demand. But now that $75 is probably $500. And the ticket prices across the board for, for, for the major acts is way beyond $500. Uh, so. I think what happens is I think the superstars will still continue to get those prices and still do great business. But I think somebody who pays $500, $700, for a ticket that's a middle-class person won't be able to go to a couple of other shows that they'd like to go see 
where the ticket price, top ticket price might only be $80 or $90, right? But if you're spending $700, you know, the next month or two, you're not, you, you're saving your money, you know, now. Look, there's a lot of rich people in this world, and in America especially. So, you know, rich people are going to pay whatever they want because it's a certain tro- trophy. You know, it, you know, there's some people who all drive in Lamborghinis and Porsches. All right. Um, but I think it's going to hurt going forward. And I think it's already hurt the rock business. As you have written i'm sure there's not a lot of rock acts anymore you know all the old ones are still there all right but it's very rare that you see a a new rock act really really top off um there's probably more americana acts that have grown into being uh arena acts than straight ahead rock and roll bands and you think that's because the prices for the so-called heritage acts are so expensive? Yeah, I do. I do. And look, you know, it's, 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 uh, with a lot of these acts, well, the heritage acts, psychologically, even if they don't say it's the last tour, everybody thinks it's the last tour. <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, this was on a, what, eight year final tour? Um, and I still don't believe they won't get back together. I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, the Eagles, you know, this the last tour. Maybe, maybe I think if Glenn Fry was alive, it wouldn't be, but I think that, 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 uh, um, Henley knows he can go out on his own and still draw pretty big crowds. Not as big as Eagles, but pretty big crowds. Um, and the pop and hip hop acts that have exploded, um, you know, with few exceptions, I don't think they have long careers. There are some exceptions, no question. I mean, Beyonce and, and Taylor Swift, I think, are forever. Um, but uh, um, and there are a couple of hip hop acts that that will probably have a long, long to, uh, career. But if you look back at hip hop. 20, 30 years ago, the acts that were really big, say LL Cool J, they can't sell any tickets anymore. All right. Snoop Dogg, you know, I did, you know, I think there's a resurgence for Snoop, but I did Snoop a bunch of years ago and couldn't sell out the Apollo. You know, so it, it, it seems to me that while uh, hip hop is enormous, uh, it doesn't seem to be creating long-term careers. I could be wrong. You know, I could be wrong, but. Let's go back to what you said. We have the COVID buildup. Some might say that the concert business will rage forever because it's unique experience in a world where we all have the same items. We have the same phone. We have this and that. And it's a once in a lifetime, maybe experience. Do you think that the business will fall off in a few years? I think the prices will fall off in a few years. All right. Um, and I think if the prices fall off, then the business will still stay very healthy. Um, it is a unique experience. All right. And even to me, and I'm sure you, at the right show, the air on the back of your neck still stands up. You know, and I've seen thousands of shows. 
you know. So there's nothing like that, except for maybe you know championship sports. Uh, so no, I, I'm not predicting the demise of the concertist by any way, shape, or form. You know what I'm predicting is that I don't think they can sustain these crazy ticket prices over the long haul. Some of them will be there as long as there's a super superstar, they'll be there. All right, but I think the crazy ticket prices uh, will 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 have to come down. All right, and we'll have to give the audience a more reasonable reason to go to shows, to go to acts that you know that 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 they're not quite sure they love but they like. And like I said, in the Americana world, look, you know, Mumford and Sons, Lumineers. I mean, you can go on and on and on. You know, some of those acts have become arena acts. You know, 10 years ago, there was no such thing as an Americana act becoming an arena act. You know, so, you know, I think that's, you know, that 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 is uniquely uh, American to the American upper middle class, well-educated person. All right. I think they're, you know, they're, 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 they're listening to these acts. Um, whether it be on their, their computer or whether on what little radio is left and, and, uh, the acts are getting big. Okay. Let's say you're talking about these tickets, 500 to $1,200. How can you control prices today when the demand far outstrips capacity and People are willing to pay much more than the face value. Well, platinum tickets. You know, it's one of the things that that Ticketmaster uh, was good at. Um, Creating platinum tickets, taking a certain amount of of good seats, um, and basically put them up for auction. um, So that the heavy hitters, you know, will be able to pay, um, you know, higher prices than the average punter. What about the secondary market? Well, I've been fighting this, Bob, for 45 years and beating my head against the wall. Um, you know, I, I was successful at one point in getting New Jersey uh, to put together an anti-scalping law. It was a good law, all right, except for law enforcement wouldn't enforce it, all right? And, you know, I remember sitting down once with, like, a colonel from the New Jersey State Police and saying, why aren't you, it's the law, it got passed, the governor signed it. Why? And he was pretty simple. He said, I'm worried about killings and rapes and grand, grand larceny. I get no time chasing after a ticket scout. So, you know, it eventually, um, you know, it, it went away. So, you know, I think that if you take complete greed out of it, there's a way that the industry can modify scalping, all right, with something like platinum, all right, um, and uh, come back down to earth. You know, I, I, I speak, you know, reasonably often at colleges, um, and I even for one year taught a course at Syracuse. Um, a lot of kids these days, college-age kids, which should be the heart of the music business, don't go to shows. They go to clubs. They don't go to shows. 
I lectured at NYU a, a year or two ago. Probably there were 40 kids in the class. Maybe 25% of them went to shows. They all went to clubs. All right. Just to be clear, you're talking about a club where there's a DJ and bottle service and all that stuff. Or, or even a band. But the ticket price, the admission is $10. You know, or they pass the hat. Um, so it's not a lack of interest by young America that, uh, in, in, in music. You know, it's that they can't afford to go to the big shows. And certainly can't afford to go to many of them. You know, we're going to see, we're going to see next year an enormous Rolling Stone tour. Biggest ever. All right. Probably as big as it possibly can be. Because now they don't have to say it's going to be the last tour. The average person is going to say they're 80 years old. How many more times can they do this? I better go see it. You know, and who aren't far behind that? You know. Um, and look at look at the Genesis tour. You know, Collins couldn't couldn't stand up. He he you know he performed and sang reasonably well, sitting down. All right, these acts are going to fade away. You know, and 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 uh, you know some of them are retiring. You know, some acts that you know that I did a lot of business with over the years that were still doing great business. Retired, Joan Baez, retired. You know, last time she played New York, I sold out three shows at the Beacon with her. She retired. All right. Paul Simon basically retired. All right. He might do a date now and again, but he's not going to tour again. Um, so, you know, some of these acts, you know, are going to drag their asses out on stage until they drop. Um, so, you know, we still got, you know, probably a few more years. Of the war horses, um, but then what happens? Now, of course, also I think that you know well is country's mainstream. Country was never mainstream in most of my career. Never, never, never. Right, and as a matter of fact, very few big country acts, big country acts, ever played New York. All right, Willie always played New York. Willie even played stadiums for me in in uh, in New York and in upstate New York, but. Um, you know, the mainstream big uh, country acts didn't play New York. Johnny Cash played. I played Johnny Cash a couple of times, once at Carnegie Hall. An amazing show. All right. But they just didn't come. And I used to argue with some of the agents I knew in Nashville is, okay, let's say you can sell out an arena in uh, 40 of the 50 states. You can't in the Northeast. But come and play a theater. You know, do something to try to build your business. Um, but of course, in most of the Northeast, there was not and still isn't any country radio. But the big country acts have basically become mainstream rock bands. All right. Um, and, and with all, with, you know, with, with, with all the, the things that go with being a big time ma mainstream rock band. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, 
the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Michael Rappaport, and my wife, Kibi Rappaport, starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, how did you meet the Grateful Dead? I met the Grateful Dead. Uh, by uh, booking a show in the early 70s at this AAA baseball park, Roosevelt Stadium. Um, And uh, I booked it just from, they had an agent for one tour. Other than that, they never had an agent. Um, And a friend of mine named Ron Rainey was the agent. And he sold me a show. I don't remember what guarantee I played, but I knew they were big enough to sell a lot of tickets. and so uh, I played that first show. I got along with him well. Uh, it was um, a craft to be able to get along with them because of the zoo that surrounded them, roadies at all. All right. But, you know, I was a tough little kid. And, uh, you know, I took their shit and gave it back to them. Um, so can you give me an example of taking their shit and giving it back to them? Oh, one time, uh, w- one time uh, uh, when they're doing a sound check, I'm on stage. I think it was uh, up in Rochester, and uh, Kid Candelario, one of their one of their uh, uh, roadies, 
all right, uh, I'm, I'm standing on the side of the stage, and all of a sudden, he throws a full can of soda, all right, at me, whizzes by my head. If it hit me, it would have killed me, probably, or damaged me badly. I didn't say a word. I turned around. I picked it up and heaved it right back at him. <laughs> they respected me for that. You know? And the other thing is, you know, they were they were very wary when I first met them. Now, I wasn't around in the 60s. So all I know about the 60s, which was a very colorful period for them, is what they told me. All right. But by the 70s, they didn't trust agents. They didn't trust most promoters. Um, and, you know, I developed a nice relationship with, you know, doing a few dates. <clears throat> and then one day, I think it was probably 74, 75, um, I get a phone call like two o'clock in the morning from Rock Scully who was, you know, one of the characters in, in, in their lives and was their road manager at the time. And he called me, uh, woke me up at night. I said, you know, what's up? He said, uh, Garcia and Hunter got busted. I said, okay, what do you want me to do about it? He said, they need to get bailed out. They're in, I think it was Mount Holly, New Jersey. I said, okay, how much is the bail? I think they said $2,000 or $3,000. Had the capital in those days. Had a safe with a fair amount of cash in it always. So I said, okay, give me the address where it is. And, you know, I'll go to the capital. I'll get the money and I'll go bail them out. What he didn't realize was this town was about a half an hour outside of Philadelphia. And I was way up in northern Jersey. All right. He didn't bother to look at a map because the call he should have made was to Larry Maggot. All right. But he didn't. So I jumped in my car. I had a friend with me, drove for two hours down there, bailed him out of jail, um, drove him back uh, to New York uh, and uh, hung out with, uh, with Garcia and Hunter till, you know, daylight. Um. And, uh, you know, Garcia, I can tell you, was one of the smartest people I ever met in my life. He's up there with three or four other people, none of whom are musicians. Uh, and uh, we were friends. You know, I can say that not to brag, but we were friends. Um, see that picture right there that I'm pointing to? Well, we're, we're, we're audio only. Oh, okay. You So you can't see me. Okay. Right. So he painted me a picture. All right. And it's sitting on my wall. Um, nobody in the Grateful Dead ever got a picture from. Him. All right. Um, so I, you know, I had a very quiet, very interesting relationship with him. And one day they toured and I played him at, at Roosevelt Stadium again, their wall of sound tour. Um, and uh, technically it was a complete disaster. Sold a lot of tickets, but complete disaster. And they decided to get off the road for a while. All right, try to figure out the, the whole sound thing, et cetera, et cetera. So they filmed the last dates of those tours, which were at Winterland. All right. Um, so um, 
you know, I'm sort of staying in touch, you know, but they're not on the road. So not much to do. Phone rings one day. It's Jerry. And, uh, you know, I basically said, what's up? He said, uh, I want you to fly out to LA to meet me. I said, okay, you know, what's it about? He said, you'll see when you get here. So, you know, <laughs> you're not going to say no to Jerry Garcia. I get on a plane. I fly out. He picks me up uh, at the airport. And in a, in a, I always remember this. It's the first one I ever saw. The 2002 BMW, which was like the starter BMW in those days. Uh, and we went to um, a studio where they were cutting the film. And they had a rough cut of the film. He said, I want you to see the film. So I sat there for whatever it was, close to two hours, I guess. And it was great. It's still great. It's still one of the great rock and roll movies of all time. Um, and uh, he said, you like it? I said, yeah, I think it's fabulous. I said, okay, let's go. We're going to have dinner at Hal Kant's house, which is his, their lawyer, the dead's lawyer. He's passed away, but very interesting guy. He was the dead's lawyer, and he was also a uh, world poker champion. Uh, and so we had dinner. Um, and. Uh, at the end of dinner, we went and sat down in the living room, and uh, he said, uh, or I said to him, Jerry, could, the movie was great. I really enjoyed it. Could you tell me why you wanted me to see it so badly? All right? He said, oh, yeah, sure. You're going to distribute it. I said, Jerry, the only thing I know about movies is that I go to them once in a while. I don't <laughs> have to distribute a movie. All right? He said, that might be true, John but you know more about how to promote a Grateful Dead than anybody else alive. So the vote of confidence that you, you can't beat. So I, 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 I learned and my staff learned very quickly how to distribute a movie. And we, 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 it was unique. Um, we, we four-walled the best-sounding theaters, and I think we ended up playing 30, maybe 40 cities one at a time a week or two at a time and brought in sound systems so that because in those days movie theaters the only sound was behind the screen one giant uh speaker so um we did that um and uh you know it was successful and then i helped them make a deal with a with a distributor to do all the secondary markets and stuff and uh you know i talked to them nearly every day and uh, he had a, actually Jerry had a manager a guy named Richard Loren at the time, who's a very good guy, still a friend of mine. Um, and he was very instrumental in all that. So, you know, that's happening. And then when that's over with, I don't know how long, but, you know, not long after that, um, I, I get a call from both uh, Jerry and another one from Weir. They said, um, we're thinking of going back out on the road. Uh, I want you to come out and, and and meet with us. So, you know, sure, I jumped at it. Just before you meet, it's the Grateful Dead. Did you make or lose money on the movie? The movie made money. Didn't make a lot of money, but it made money. So you're, they say, uh, where and Jerry say, come out. Yep. So I come out and we go to Weir's house, which was the, the ultimate ba bachelor pad at the time. All right, on top of one of the mountain in Marin, and yeah, um, and uh, we sit around for a long time. You know, probably 
six, seven hours. And basically what they all say is we want to go on a road. We haven't figured out how to really play arenas yet. All right. Where it would sound good. See, to them, the reason I think that their career is second only to the Beatles, that they are the most significant sociological act of the rock era was because they really gave a shit about the fans. All right. And they didn't want to, having failed with this wall of sound, they wanted to figure out a way to be able, and they weren't going to go to big, bigger places, uh, especially indoors, uh, um, until they could get the sound right. So he said, we're not playing arenas. So, you know, what do you think, John? So it sort of just sort of fell out of my mouth. It wasn't really any stroke of genius. I said, let's pick 10 cities. Let's play three days in each city, you know, the theaters that you would normally play. Because at that point, they were only playing like single nights in places. Um, I said, and, and um, you know, let's, you know, let's get, get, get the buzz back. Uh, and uh, they said, uh, okay, but, you know, won't, they were very self-aware of how big they were. Uh, they said, uh, how are we going to distribute the tickets? You know. Um, because there'll be more people than tickets available, and they they didn't want to do it. I don't remember if there was Ticketmaster yet or there was Ticketron still, but they didn't want to do that. So I said to them, "We'll do a lottery." How do we? What do you mean we'll do a lottery? I said, "We'll put the word out, give them a post office box, let them, you know." write a ticket request with a money order and we'll fill them until we're sold out. So they like that idea. So they said, who's going to do that? I said, I'll do it. All right. So I had a little office in Jersey. Um, that was the second floor of, of a building that was an insurance broker on the, on the first floor. Anyway, so we put the word out and there was a deadhead hotline. There were two deadhead hotlines, one in San Francisco, one in at the Capitol, uh, got the word out, and it was an amazing response. We got hundreds of thousands of requests for tickets, you know. And the average city was probably 7,500, 8,000 tickets three days in a theater. Um, and the first amazing thing is they started to come in is the envelopes, almost all of them had really intricate artwork on them, so. You immediately said, okay, I know they're a great band, but this is something really special, you know, for the fans to, you know, draw this stuff. So we, we did, we did the whole country 24 hours a day, three shifts of people. Um, I lost my lease. I got thrown out of the office. Um, but we pulled it off. It did well. Had a good time. And over those few years, uh, they, you know, the, the sound companies were getting more and more sophisticated. Uh, and, you know, their, their sound people always were, you know, really on top of things. So first, um, I introduced them to Claire Brothers. One or two tours. They were the real state of the art at the time. And then slowly but surely, their techies took over it and built their own system. All right. Um, so we started to play arenas, um, and, uh, they put 
speakers not only on the stage, but they put sound delay speakers in the back of the arenas. All right. And they put small clusters of speakers in the hallways. All right. So wherever you were, if you were if you were a dancer, you were out in the hallway spinning away. All right. And the music was right there for you. So like I said, they cared about their fans more than any act I've ever even imagined. All right. So, you know, at that point, um, they said to me, uh, you know, you booked the tour. And I said, uh, I can introduce you to some pretty good agents. No, we don't want an agent. You booked the tour. So we made a deal. Hal Canty attorney was, was involved and, um, sort of standard deals in those days were, uh, guarantees and 85 15s. All right. So we made a deal that, um, I, 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 I'd co-promote with local promoters because I always believed that was best for them. And I always did that with all my management acts. All right. You know, you don't want, you, you know, you want somebody on the ground, you know, uh, and, uh, um, so they made those dates 80 twenties and I split them with the local promoters, except for the dates in the Northeast that I would normally have promoted anyway. Uh, and, uh, they became 85 15s. And the only thing they didn't want me involved in was the West coast. They still wanted Graham to do it. They loved Graham, but they didn't trust Graham. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. 
have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Michael Rappaport, and my wife, KB Rappaport, starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Why do they trust you? Well, I think they suspected that he wasn't giving them, suspected that he wasn't giving them a fair count. Um, and then I found out more. This, this went on for a number of years. And, you know, once I was really established as their guy, Graham got angrier and angrier with me. All right. Till finally, one day they called and they said, we're playing Spartan Stadium, I think it was in San, San Jose. All right. For Graham. But we want you to negotiate the deal. I said, are you Fucking out of your mind, <laughs> all of you guys. I said, this guy will put a hit out on me. They said, no, no, we're going to talk to him about it. He's going to be okay with it. All right. Said, you don't, you, you're not, you're not getting any piece of it. You're not promoting it. You just, you, you cut the deal because, you know, we've examined over the years, we've examined your deals. They're right, very righteous deals, et cetera, et cetera. So a day or two goes by and uh, trying to remember who called me. It's either Bobby or Mickey um, called me and said, okay, the deed's done. We've told Graham he's accepted it. I said, are you sure? said, yep, absolutely. So I called Graham <laughs> and uh, I said, Bill, you know, the, the, the dead tells me that, that you're fine with me uh, doing the deal with you. He said, that's right. I said, okay, great. So I said, uh, do me a favor, you know, send me your proposed deal, the, the, you know, the expenses, et cetera, et cetera. Let me look at them. 8515, no problem. You know, I'm not, I'm not involved financially. So he says, uh, okay. Week goes by, two weeks go by, no, no paperwork from Graham. Another week goes by. I called Greg Perloff, who I was friends with and still am friends with, all right? I said, Greg, do you have any idea what the fuck's going on? He said, Bill is not happy that he's having to deal with you. I said, then why the fuck did he tell, did he tell the dead that he would? He said, I don't know, but he's not happy. I said, Greg, so I don't rat him out to the van. Get the fucking expenses and send them to me. Said, okay, let me see what I can do. A couple of hours later, the phone rings and it's Graham. And he is fucking berserk. The only way I can describe it is he was like a beached whale, just 
screaming at the top of his lungs, just doing anything to get back in the water. All right. Um, and this tirade went on for half an hour. I couldn't get two words. And he's screaming at me. I've got to deal with Jersey for my band. So eventually the call ended. I don't know if you hung up or just whatever. I picked up the phone. I think I spoke to Lesh and Jerry. And I said, I'm fucking out. All right. I'm, you know, I'm out. I said, you know, this guy will put a fucking hit out on me, you know? And, and, uh, so they said, okay, we'll get the expenses. We just want you to look at them. All right. You know, and, and bless the expenses. So, uh, I said, okay. So they got the expenses. They sent them to me. All right. I looked at it. Everything looked pretty much in order. All right. Except for one thing that I didn't understand. There was a fee. I want to call $10,000, but I, I don't remember exactly how much it was for the set that he built. His outdoor shows, he always built, you know, pretty elaborate scenery sets. All right. And he wrote it off, you know, that they cost $10,000. Nobody ever questioned him. So when I asked the guys in the band, you know, was this kosher? They said, we've paid for this set three times already. <laughs> he's got he's got a few of them. He rotates them around because he does it for everybody, not just the Grateful Dead. All right. He paints them. He does a little, little different color here or there and then cycles them back around. We ain't paying for it. All right. So I said, okay, who's going to tell him? I said, he won't take my call. Trust me, he will not answer my phone call. So they said, uh, okay, why don't you call your friends with Pearl off? Why don't you call him and tell him? So I did. To this day, I don't know whether they paid for it or not. I didn't do the settlement. Uh, I didn't know. But this made Bill fucking crazy. And I understand why it made him crazy, which I said to him at first, you're nuts. You know? The guy doesn't like me to start with. Uh, and the relationship continued till the day Jerry died. Um, I made the Arista record deal for him uh, 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 together with, with Hal Kant, their attorney. Um, I, at the very end of my relationship with him, uh, with Cameron Sears, who became their, their tour manager, good friend of mine still, and John Frankenheimer, the attorney, uh, we made the deal at Warner Brothers, which brought the, the, the two catalogs together. It's a monumental deal. Um, and that was the last thing I did for them. Uh, and uh, Jerry passed away. And uh, the only way I can describe it, I, I don't really, I managed Weir, Cameron and I managed Weir for about 10 years after that, <clears throat> no longer. And the only way I can describe it is that, you know, they weren't difficult. I didn't manage them. Lots of people want to say I, man I didn't manage them, but I represented them, you know, in a number of ways. And uh, it's very interesting. You'd go to board meetings, and I didn't have a vote, but I sat in on them. And they'd bring up various different things, both unimportant and important. And I saw the pattern. 
when Jerry was okay with whatever was being uh, uh, proposed, he just sort of sat back and voted last or next to last. When it was something that Jerry really wanted to do or really didn't want to do, he voted first. So there, there, there was never an argument that I saw until at one point Phil Lesh, we had formed the Rex. I was a founding member of Rex. Uh, and we formed Rex, and it's great. And to this day, it's still a great charity. Um, and Danny Rifkin, who was, you know, one of the half a dozen of management kind of people from earlier days, was made the head of Rex. And I had my problems with Danny early on, but we were fine. We were, we were great friends. We still are. Phil marches into a board meeting with his wife, Jill, and says right in front of Danny and the whole band, I want to fire Danny from Rex, uh, and I want to put Jill in charge. Now, Danny did a great job, was as mellow as could be, and they all looked at Phil like he was joking, you know? And finally, he said no. He was dead serious. And I can't remember, but more than one of the members said, we're not firing Danny. So that was the beginning of the real hard feelings with Phil. He founded his own charitable organization. His wife managed him. And it just, it got, and to this day is still really ugly. Phil, in my view, decided with Jerry gone, he was the leader of the band. Jerry never even acknowledged he was the leader of the band. It just by osmosis, he was the leader of the band. Um, and uh, so, you know, it deteriorated. And then Jerry died. And I met with the band the day after the funeral. Oh, there's a funny thing on, about the funeral. Funeral, I go to the funeral, I speak at the funeral. and when we're walking out of the funeral, I walk, I'm walking out with Dylan and a San Francisco Chronicle photographer took a picture of the two of us walking out next day on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle is Bob Dylan with unknown person <laughs> leaving Jerry Garcia's <laughs> perfect. Right. Right. And what I really remember about it is while we were walking out, Dylan leaned over to me and said, you know what, John? I said, what, Bob? He said, the guy lying in there, he's the only one in the world who knows what it's like to be me. Which was pretty profound. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so uh, I met with the band uh, the next day or maybe two days later. And, and uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, you know, I said to him, guys, Jerry would not want you to break up. You know, you, you know, you guys are, you know, extraordinary group. Sure, you won't be the same, but so Phil announces absolutely not, and they vote to never call themselves the Grateful Dead again. And Phil says, "I don't want to uh, tour anymore. Um, I'm going to write the Great American Symphony," and. I think for two years, he probably tried to do that, all right? But in the meantime, 
we put together the Further Festival, right? And the Further Festival was this sort of traveling festival that was anchored by by Bob Weir and Mickey Hart and Bruce Hornsby um, and a rotating set of other people, sometimes Hot Tuna, sometimes Los Lobos, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody did their own set. And at the end of the show, everybody on stage jammed. Phil decided in the third year that he would um, go out with it. But his conditions were, I only want one opening act. All right. And, you know, I only want to play X amount of dates. So I booked the tour with Phil as part of it. Blows up, you know, enormously. We do the whole tour. The last two days are at Shoreline uh, in San Francisco. So, uh, you know, I'm out there early with the band for soundcheck. And uh, we're hanging out backstage. And one of the um, runners comes over and says, uh, Phil and Jill want to see you. So we were all, the rest of us were all in one trailer. They had their own trailer. And uh, so, you know, I, I had I had very little relationship with Phil, but I didn't have a bad relationship with Phil, or did I think I did, all right? Um, you know, most of my tenure with the dead, Phil was drunk, all right? He was a loner and and and, and he was drunk. The one and only nice thing I can say about Jill is, she sobered him up and, and, and saved his life. All right. Um, so I go into this trailer and I say, what's up, guys? And they said, uh, now, now the, the financials were all the members had an equal share and I had a share. All right. And Cameron had like a half a share, something like that, because he was still on the payroll of the Grateful Dead Productions. Uh, so... Um, I said, what's up? They said, uh, we, we, uh, we see no reason why, um, anybody but we're heart and me should get, you know, a share. Everybody else should be, you know, on salary. I said, this is the last two dates of the tour. All right. You knew what the deal was going in. I'm not going to these guys and tell them they're not going to get their money. Now, thankfully at the time I controlled the money. So, um, they said, well, if they don't agree to this, we'll never play with him ever again. So, you know, I tried my best to talk him out of that with good reason. Hornsby had been a member of the dead. All right. And he added a lot to it. Cameron, you know, was my partner really. Um, and I put up all the money. I put up all the money and did all the booking work, all right, in advance and all that. So they said, well, that's not acceptable to us. And go tell them that if they don't do it the way we want it, we'll never play with them again. So I can, I remember this like I can see it right in front of me. I went into the trailer where everybody else was, was sitting, told them what, 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 what Phil said. Mickey went fucking nuts. Absolutely nuts. Um, Hornsby just looked and said, 
not fair. That's not the deal I made. You know, and and oh, and then Mickey said, Cameron's house, there, there was a terrible storm like a couple of weeks before the tour, and a big, huge old tree fell down on Cameron's house, broke through the roof. So Mickey's screaming, Who the fuck do they think they are? Cameron's house just burnt down. His house didn't burn down, but that was the sentiment. And the sentiment was all of them, except for Phil, really felt like they were a family, right? I, I always describe it as Peter Pan and the Lost Boys, all right? Peter Pan died. The Lost Boys were lost, you know? Uh, and by putting together further, it gave them an opportunity, you know, to to be together and to work, you know, work together. So at that point, Phil, that's when Phil started to go out on his own, despite the fact that he never wrote the Great American Symphony. And there were years and years of terrible animosity. All right. And, you know, he, he, he hired an agent, uh, um, a guy named Jonathan Levine, who, you know, did really sneaky things about, you know, around the further touring and and Bob Weir touring. And, uh, you know, it was ugly. It was, it was ugly. And, 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 uh, I mean, Phil empowered Jill. First time I've ever said this out loud. And Jill was nice enough. She wasn't, let me put it this way. She wasn't an expert in the music business. And she got very vicious. They both got very vicious towards Weir and towards me. And I remember distinctly telling Bob what was going on because Cameron and I were managing Bob at the time. And Bob, Bob looked at me one day and he said, she must be able to suck the paint off of a battleship that he's listening to her that way. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> I've never said that out loud. <laughs> um, and it got uglier and uglier. There were a couple of moments that I met with them and, and they sort of begrudgingly acknowledged that I was an important part of the history. Um, but that never lasted more than a week or two. All right? <laughs> um, and then Bobby, who has always had a bit of an addiction problem, all right, was straight. He was doing great, and he was playing great. And Rat Dog, the band, was, were playing great. And he calls me one day, and he says, uh, "John, I got to tell you something that you're not going to want to hear." I said, uh, "What's that?" And he said, Phil called me and he asked me and my wife out to dinner. I said, okay, what did you say? And I said, uh, he said, well, yeah, we've got unfinished business together. I'm going to go. And I said, Bobby, now for most of the post Jerry time, Bobby, when he had a play with Phil, got physically ill and got drunk. All right. Um, and, you know, we sent him to rehab a couple of times. He always recovered. <laughs> he also, every year for the month of February, he, he got completely sober. Why the month of February? Shortest month of the year. 
<laughs> and he admitted it. Right. And when Bobby was just a casual drinker or pot or whatever, he was fine. You know, he was fine. But he sp- spun out a couple of times. So I said, okay, go to Phil. Just, you know, be careful. So they go to dinner with their wives. And the next day, Bobby calls me and says, uh, John, I did something that you're going to be mad at me about. I said, what's that, Bob? He said, uh, I agreed to go out with Phil. And I said, uh, Bobby, every time you've done that, we've had to send you to rehab. All right. So he says, well, they cornered me and I didn't really have any way out. Bobby is not someone that does good with confrontation. He's very smart. Don't get me wrong. So I said, what happened? Now, if you remember, Phil had relatively recently gotten a new liver because he was a terrible alcoholic. I think actually, I don't know this for sure, but I think he might have got two livers. Um, but he was clear, completely sober, so we thought. All right. And Bobby said they went to this restaurant and Phil ordered a bottle of wine, ordered for everybody. Said Phil drank. He said, absolutely. And four or five bottles later, we're all shit faced drunk. He said, that's when I agreed. I'd go out with him. I said, you're nuts. I want no part of this. So he said, well, one of the conditions is that you and Cameron aren't involved in the tour. I said, Bobby, you know, you can meet that condition. You know, I'm quitting. All right. I'm not going to see you go to your grave. All right. For this motherfucker who... You know, Bobby told me stories, you know, from when he first joined the band. Remember, Bobby's like five years younger than everybody. So he was like 17 or 18 years, and they were like, you know, in their early 20s. He said, Phil used to beat the shit out of him. You know, there were two two incidents. Once he said, Phil threw him down a set of stairs, could have broken every bone in his body. All right. And then once Phil was in the back seat of a, of a car that, that he was in the front seat, and Phil was smacking the shit out of him while they were, while they were driving. I said, you remember telling me these things? He said, yeah, but I've got unfinished business with him. I said, well, you're going to have to do it without me. And then Cameron said separately the same thing. Um, and, uh, of course, they put the shows on sale, and it did great business. Uh, <laughs> but Bobby got shit-faced at every single show. All right. and. There's one very famous show that was at the Capitol Theater in Portchester, all right, where the Phil and Bob show played. And Bob was so fucked up that on stage, he fell down. And this is all on videotape. You can see this, all right? Bob falls down, and Phil doesn't even look at him. Doesn't even look at him, just keeps playing. Rhodes went onto the stage, pick up Bob, put him in a chair. All right. Phil still hasn't looked at him. All right. And the only reason I say that, I wasn't there, but I've seen the video. 
It exists. A little while longer, maybe a half a song later, Bobby falls off the chair. All right? So this is really fucking sad. Phil never looked at him. When the roadies came out to take him off the stage, help him off the stage, Phil never looked at him. All right? So deep down inside, you got to believe that he really, really resented the shit out of Bobby. Why? I don't know. Bobby was better looking than him. He, he went out with prettier girls than he did. He wrote hit songs, which Phil never did. Um, he sang lead on half the songs, you know, um, but those were all facts. And when Jerry was alive, you know, you couldn't tell that there was a problem. All right. The first I knew that Bobby had a problem with Phil was over the years, he told me about these couple of incidents when, when the band first formed. So Bobby did that. And then one more time they played together, I think on this fair, fairly well, uh, show that was, uh, up in Wisconsin. And to the best of my knowledge, they've never played together again. But you know what? I wouldn't surprise if they did, if they did. Bobby is the most non-confrontational person I've ever met. I love him to death. And uh, it's just sad. It's just sad. You know, he's never gotten over Jerry's death. Look at the beard. Bobby never had a beard. He grew the beard after Jerry died. You know, he wanted to look like Jerry. You know, so He's a brilliant guy. He's a sweetheart, but he's non-confrontational. And he's, you know, let people take advantage of him, specifically Phil. Do these guys have any money? And did they have money during the time that you worked with them? Um, yeah, they had money. Um, they didn't nearly have what they could have had because they had like 50 people on the payroll. At real salaries, at the equivalent of, you know, six-figure salaries, all right? So, in that way, it was almost a commune, all right? Um, but they made a lot of money. Like I said, the Warner Brothers deals, deal at the end was multi-multi-million dollars. And I think they were, you know, at, at that point, I think they were wealthy, not crazy wealthy, all right? But they owned all their own publishing. And, uh, you know, Jerry's is obviously worth a fortune and Bob's is worth a fortune. All right. So, you know, I always drove into Bob's head that, you know, you know, that's your retirement. You know, don't fuck around with it. Uh, and he never did. He, ne he never did. And actually, Robert Hunter ran the publishing company. Now, I think they're all much wealthier because I think that. Phil did very good business when he went out with his Phil and friends for a number of years. And Dead and Company did huge business. So, you know, Dead and Company, Bobby and Mickey, and for a while, Billy, although Billy left at some point, had to be making a lot, a lot of money. You know, so, yeah, I think they're all fine financially. What's the best Grateful Dead show you ever saw? Very hard, you know, very hard. I mean, I've seen so many, so many. I think Roosevelt Stadium, when they played with the band uh, a couple of days before uh, Watkins Glen, um, I think 
the second night they played the Capitol in that original run. One that the Deadheads very often cite as the greatest show was at Cornell. Um, I was there. I didn't spend a lot of time watching the show because you ever been up to Ithaca? I have. Yeah, so you know, there's all these uh, uh, deep ravines and stuff. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, the kids were all fucking stoned out of their mind. So, you know, I spent much of that show (laughs) outside trying to keep kids from jumping into the ravines. Um, So, uh, hey, you know, it's funny, but it's true. And, and, you know, I've heard the show over and over. So it was, it was a great show, you know, and, and, and it's interesting, you know, every show they've virtually ever played is, you know, is on tape and, you know, uh, yeah, everybody can hear it. Um, I would say that maybe two out of every 10 were stinkers. All right. You could tell when they were stinkers. More than you could tell whether they're great or were they very great. Right, right. Because like any band, although, you know, they never really had any hit singles. They had one hit single, Tetra Gray, which, you know, almost killed everybody. Um, but. What, what do you mean it almost killed everybody? Well, well, what happened was they were huge at that point. Jerry comes out of, out of this coma. All right. Writes Touch of Gray. It's like a top five, top 40 hit. Right. Uh, so they were huge underground, FM-wise, whatever. But then it goes mainstream. And so the shows get overwhelmed with people trying to break in. I remember uh, standing on the hill at Saratoga Performing Arts Center. It's completely sold out. And there were, there were like 10,000 kids outside the fence. And finally, they broke the fence down and they came over, they came over the fence like lemmings. You know, so, you know, it became, it became clear to everybody. We couldn't play amphitheaters anymore. And, and, uh, they never wanted to play stadiums. They had turned me down like two years in a row to play stadiums or big stadiums. They played like Roosevelt stadium, but you know, that was 30,000. Um, and finally, when the last year that we did amphitheaters, it was so amok and, and, uh, you know, some of the amphitheaters said, you just can't come back. I took another shot at doing doing stadiums with them. And they said, no, it's a ripoff to the fans. I said, how about this? What if I got a support act that was big enough in each of those cities to be a sellout one-night arena act? And they opened for you. And all we had to do is up the ticket price by $5 because they were very sensitive about ticket prices too. All right. They said, can you do that? I said, yeah, I can do it. You know, I'm going to have to pay the axe, you know, six figures, but yeah, I can do it, but you'll make as much or more money, more money, actually. So one year it was Steve Winwood. One year it was Crosby, Sills, and Nash. One year it was Bob Dylan and Tom Petty together. One year it was just Dylan and the the Grateful Dead backed up Dylan. So, um, it was spectacular success. A spectacular success. Their ticket prices were still less than almost everybody's. Um, and, and, uh, you know, the audience, the audience got, you know, a, a huge headliner. Even with those huge headliners, in the beginning of the show, 
stadiums were maybe a third filled. By three quarters of the way through the show, they were packed. And they were smart enough. You know, I said they didn't have any hit singles, but they had their equivalent of hit singles. Uncle John's band, Casey Jones, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, playing in the band. So they sort of recognized that and tended to more than in other situations, play a bunch of those songs towards the end. And so the audience went completely fucking nuts. <laughs> um, so, you know, in their own way, they were great showmen. You know, they weren't, you know, they weren't slick. They weren't, they didn't use a lot of tricks, um, but they were great showmen. Uh, and, uh, you know, to this day, listen, I think I could be wrong. No way to know. I think the Grateful Dead are bigger now than they ever were. I think that the, the entity, the Grateful Dead, from a merchandising point of view, from a, a, a music point of view, I think they're bigger than they ever were. I think other than the Beatles, not only the most sociological important act, I think other than the Beatles are the biggest act in the world. Well, I can't count Taylor Swift or anything, the biggest rock act in, 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 in the world. Um, and will continue to be. You know, you talk to kids who weren't alive when Jerry, when Jerry was in the band. And they're absolute deadheads. So, you know, it's, you know, it's a great salute to them. Absolutely. The dead are forever. We can't go on forever. We'll have to do this again, John. There's so much we couldn't even get into. Never mind more dead stories. But I want to thank you so much for talking to my audience. No problem. Thanks. I'm happy to do it again. You bet. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsitz. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hills and Adonis, mm -hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm -hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.